Welcome to Palmdale United Methodist Church's podcast for Sunday, January 13th, 2019. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In the United Methodist Church, uh, pastors are guaranteed one year at a time in every congregation. One year. That's it. It's called the itinerant system, and it's the only system United Methodist clergy had ever known. One year at a time. It began with the founder, John Wesley, who thought local churches should be strong no matter who the pastor may be. And so he rotated pastors every one to two years. Well, Actually, originally, United Methodist pastors rode on horseback to a number of congregations uh, throughout uh, the cycle. It probably would take them two or three or four months to get to all the churches that they were responsible for one week at a time. And they were called circuit riders back then. Well, times have changed a bit, but we United Methodist pastors are still called to be open to wherever God may need us to serve during an appointment year. And the appointment year begins on July 1 and runs through June 30th. Palmdale, United Methodist Church, is my fourth pastoral appointment in my 25, 26 years of ministry. My first appointment was Christ United Methodist Church on the island of Oahu. I was there for three years, from 1994 to 1997. Iaea United Methodist Church, also on Oahu, was my third appointment. I served there 15 years prior to coming here to Palmdale, and I was at Iaea from 2000 to 2015. But sandwiched between my first and my third appointments was my second appointment at Hilo United Methodist Church on the Big Island of Hawaii. Now, as you may imagine, it's always difficult changing congregations. But the Hilo to Iaea move was especially challenging for me because Hilo United Methodist Church was really my home church. It was the very first United Methodist Church that I ever belonged to. It's where I attended during high school when I first became United Methodist. And then when Jody and, and I moved to Hilo in 97 uh, to start pastoring there, you could say the church was graying in terms of the Uh, the demographics. But over the course of the three years that I served there, younger families started coming. Weekly worship attendance grew from uh, about 85 to 130. I was excited about what God was doing. Plus, it was great living on the same island as Jody's parents and her brother and his family. It was wonderful to be, uh, for the first time in a long time, be able to live back on the same island with Jody's parents. We had both gone to high school uh, together at the Big Island. And everything was going great until I received the call from the district superintendent. The bishop would like me to consider being the new pastor of IAEA United Methodist Church. Now, the hard part wasn't thinking about going to IAEA and being the pastor there. I knew it was a strong, vibrant, dynamic church. The hard part, though, was leaving Hilo. I'd only been there for three years The church seemed to be turning a corner. People were excited. Ministry was happening. And I honestly didn't think it was the right time for me to move. And in the course of the next 48 hours, actually I was only given 24 hours to make my mind up, but then I asked for another 24 hours, so I had 48 hours uh, to give the bishop a decision. Would I go where I was called or would I 
<clears throat> shall we say, respectfully decline to go. And depending on the bishop, that's either allowed or not allowed. At the bishop at that time, it would have been allowed. It was a long 48 hours for me and Jody. In the end, the Holy Spirit revealed something to me that was hard for me to hear. That deep down, the bottom line question that I kept hearing the Spirit ask me in my soul was, do you think you're the only one who can be an effective pastor at Hilo United Methodist Church? And deep down, my bottom line reaction was honestly, well, yes. (laughs) Nobody can do what I can do. Look at how we turn things around, right? I knew right then that I had a problem with pride and arrogance. And I eventually had to trust that God could send another pastor to be an effective minister at Hilo United Methodist Church. I had to give up the notion that I was the only one that could lead that church into a positive direction. And I must say, it was a very humbling lesson for me. Welcome to the first week in a brand new sermon series I'm so excited about. It's called Antidote, Countering the Seven Deadly Sins. Graham Tomlin, in his book, The Seven Deadly Sins and How to Overcome Them, comments that in today's world, describing something as sinful usually falls into that naughty but nice category. I mean, we know we shouldn't do it, but it'll be a lot of fun, and it probably won't do anyone any real harm, right? At other times, sinful seems to describe something that's prescribed by people who just want to stop others uh, from enjoying themselves, like the fun police. Don't do that. It's a sin. But it hasn't always been this way. For centuries, our ancestors thought of sin as a pattern of life that was simply destructive. It destroyed families, friendships, happiness, peace of mind, innocence, love, security, even nature. And most of all, sin destroyed our relationship with God. It's not helpful anymore to think of sin as simply breaking the rules because it's so much more than that. Sin is a pattern of destructive habits that damage everything. Sin isolates us and makes us unable to to maintain healthy relationships. Tomlin writes, Sin was like a virus that got into everything, so that although life carried on, it never quite worked the way we felt it ought to. Life always had that, that grit in the corner of the eye, the nagging soreness of a shoe that doesn't fit, the, the reminder of a dark secret that won't go away. So, over the next month and a half, we're going to be looking at the traditional seven deadly sins. But, but I don't want you to approach this series like a checklist, you know what I mean? Like, uh, let's see, uh, yep, I got that one. Nope, pretty good over there. And nope, not there. Yep, that one. That, we're not going to be doing that. Instead, I, I, I hope and pray that we'll all be open to how God might want to speak to us in each of these seven areas. Right? Because knowing that it's God's desire that we become more and more like Jesus. That's what it means to be a disciple, right? a follower, to become more and more like Jesus. So let's try not to be defensive It'll happen to all of us, myself included. Try to approach this series with an open heart and mind and see how God wants to refine us and shape us and mold us to be more like him. Now, the seven deadly sins don't actually appear in the Bible as a list. Uh, In 375 AD, a monk named uh, Evagrius Ponticus left the city of Constantinople to join a monastery, and he cataloged eight terrible temptations of the soul. Terrible temptations. 
Well, some 200 years later, in 590 AD, Pope Gregory the Great examined Evagrius's list. He cut one off, narrowed it down to seven, and instead of temptations, he called them sins and added the word deadly to them. In his book, Seven, The Deadly Sins in the Beatitudes, Jeff Cook writes this. The deadly sins are a summons into a dead life, a dysfunctional life. And if you're like me, you've received and embraced their invitation countless times. But what you and I really want is freedom. To break past our addictions and failures, we want the scrapes and claw marks in our souls to heal and our lives to be made whole again. That, my friends, is the goal of this series. Not to condemn, not to shame any of us into repentance, but instead to admit that though this is an ancient list, it still has relevance for us today. Nevertheless, we want to move beyond merely wallowing in that sin or self-pity and move towards healing and wholeness, to live into the abundant life that Jesus promised us. So, the first stop on our Sins of the Week tour is pride. Pope Gregory called it the mother and queen of all vices. Evagrius called pride a tumor of the soul filled with pus. When it has ripened, it will rupture and create a disgusting mess. How's that for being graphic? Augustine, another one of the early church fathers, said that pride was actually the foundation of every other sin. Pride made the soul desert God, he said to whom it should cling to as a source of life, and to imagine itself instead as the source of its own life. Pride makes a person feel as though they don't need God, and that's a dangerous place to be. In fact, that's what many people believe caused the angel Lucifer to be cast out of heaven. That story, by the way, is also not in the Bible. It's only referred to in generalities in Revelation chapter 12. But pride is the natural love we have for ourselves, which that by itself is not a bad thing. However, when it gets magnified and perverted to include disdain for others, that's when it starts to become deadly. The sin of pride is not thinking too much of myself. It's thinking of myself far too much. Can you see the difference? Unlike the other sins we'll be talking about in this series, pride usually appears when we're at our very best. It loves to capitalize on our successes even more than our failures. No matter what we do, pride loves to hold our reflections up to ourselves as an idol to be cherished. Even good things can be a source of negative pride, like, look how loving and honest and humble I am, right? Pride is the most isolating of sins. It always sets up things in terms of competition. If greed is the desire to be rich, pride is the desire to be richer than everyone else. One writer has said that pride is the only sickness that makes everyone else ill except the one who has it. I love that. Author Jeff Cook calls pride the most significant barrier to living the life of God's kingdom that we're supposed to. Which may be why it's almost always the first in the list of the seven deadly sins. Cook goes even so far as to say that God may therefore remove our pride through drastic means. Pain, failure, even through some of the other six deadly sins to get us to come to grips with what pride is doing in our lives. Now, it may be helpful for us uh, to take a step back here for a moment and acknowledge that most of the seven deadly sins actually start with something uh, that is good, but then has been taken to excess. 
that's the path that gets us towards destruction. We take something that's good and go to excess. For example, uh, gluttony begins with the necessary act of eating, right? We all need to eat, but when taken to excess. Or lust begins with feelings of love, which are great, but then when taken to excess. Sloth, we all need to rest, but when taken to excess. And pride as well starts out good. There are things we should take pride in. Our children, our achievements, our church, our country. But if we refuse to see the shortcomings of any of these areas, it can lead to negative pride, especially if it's not coupled with humility. The ancient Greeks called this hubris, literally meaning I am God to my life. It was the most serious of all sins, for it involved shaming and humiliating others while exalting oneself over everyone else. In the Bible, it involves us wanting to outshine others. In 320 uh, AD, the writer Dante penned his famous work, The Inferno, and he describes prideful sinners walking around Mount Purgatory, hunched over with great stones on their back, unable to look up because they spent a lifetime looking down on everyone else. In 512, a Catholic monk, Martin Luther, rebelled against the pride that he saw rampant within the church, which was the Catholic church at that time. And out of his Protestant movement, the Anabaptists formed with a new focus on humility. The Mennonites and the Amish have continued that Anabaptist tradition today. As I was preparing for this series, I came across a helpful distinction in Michael Mangus's book, Signature Sins, Taming Our Wayward Hearts. He writes, there's a difference between outward pride and inward pride. The outwardly prideful person is really oblivious to others and, and assumes that the world should work according to his or her desires. It's interesting to note that the root of the word narcissism is the Greek word narke, which means numb, which is also where we get the word narcotics, right? And the outwardly prideful person is numb to everyone else around them, including God. Outward pride is manifested in arrogance and snobbery, St. Augustine of Hippo, in his prayer book, lists several forms of pride that are most likely to be shown and evidenced on the outside. Starts with vanity, an inordinate focus on one's image. But did you know that the object of vanity, what's considered to be beautiful by society, has changed over time? Today, being beautiful often includes being thin and tanned. But in 19th century England, it was more desired to be heavy, which showed that you had enough resources to take care of yourself and eat well. Uh, And in many cultures over the ages, being tan was a badge of shame, signifying to all that you were a common laborer that had to work outside. Now people actually pay money for tanning booths or to take vacations in the tropics. I won't even talk about the spray-on tan uh, that you can also do. Another form of outward pride is arrogance, a demanding, overbearing, and opinionated form of pride in yourself. Snobbery is pride over race, family, class, or other characteristics that create a sense of superiority of one group over another. Irreverence involves a neglect of worship and reverence to God. It includes cynicism towards things that are holy. Or, Augustine said... People who participate in religious activities purely for social and personal advantage, but not to connect with God. Wow. Disobedience, uh, disregarding God's will and the laws of morality, or even simply 
not seeking to understand what God's will for your life actually is. And then impenitence, a form of pride that refuses to acknowledge your sin or even to admit that you have wronged another person. On the other side, inward pride uh, leads a person to be obsessed with others and how they feel about him or her. This person is self-focused, but the person's pride is revealed through an inordinate concern with image rather than having an arrogant outward attitude. Secret pride is the most difficult type of pride to combat, says Augustine. You see, outward pride, uh, outward sins humiliate us when we realize that everyone else can see them and see how we've acted. But secret sins flourish in the dark corners of our souls. Pride can only be combated if it's exposed, and the sin of pride can only be exposed by the person who's actually experiencing it or hiding it. So, the form of inward pride that is most easily hidden is distrust. Distrust involves a rejection of God's will in favor of one's own will. The sin desires to know the future, and I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that I am the master of where I'm going, not able to uh, accept the unknown and wherever it is that God may be leading beyond your control. Distrust can result in perfectionism, A perfectionist often thinks that God's will cannot be accomplished if he or she ever makes a mistake, so you strive to be perfect. I think that's what the Pharisees were, uh, got caught up in. They wanted to hold all the rules and the laws of, uh, of the land, and they were chastising others for making errors, and yet everyone makes mistakes. Even church leaders make mistakes. Sentimentality is a form of pride that when one uh, substitutes pious emotions, pomp, and beauty over the place of true reverence and obedience to God. It's, it's not so much uh, what everyone, how everyone sees you doing what you're doing, but what's happening on the inside. And then presumption is another form of pride. It's the distortion of hope, one of the other classic virtues. Presumption plays an inordinate and disrespectful reliance on oneself rather than on God's grace. The presumptuous person often assumes that God will always forgive, so it doesn't really matter how I act because I can always ask for forgiveness later. I don't have to change my life. Yes, I know it's a sin, but God will forgive me, so why do anything different? That's presumption. Now, I know I've only begun to scratch the surface of pride, but the title of the series is Antidote, so I don't want to spend all the time in, in uh, uh, talking on, on what that is, but how to counter the deadly sin of pride. There's all kinds of stories and passages and the verses in the Bible that we could use uh, to combat each of the seven deadly sins that we'll be covering in the next month or so. But I'm going to be coming back to one particular passage, week after week after week. And that's the passage that we just read together this morning, the Beatitudes. When Jesus preached his famous Sermon on the Mount, the very first section is the blessed are thus, that part. That's often referred to as the Beatitudes. And it wasn't until I saw Jeff Cook's book titled Seven, The Deadly Sins and the Beatitudes that I actually started making that connection. At first glance, I didn't think it really fit. But upon closer examination, I think it's brilliant. Cook comments how these two lists, the seven deadlies and the Beatitudes, are two sets of invitations, two different paths available to us. Both call us to deep places within to come and taste. Both present themselves as life as it actually is. Both invite us to take up residence within them, but only one will make us 
truly happy. He writes, The Beatitudes are the antidote to the poisons we so readily consume. If only we could see where they speak to the infected places inside us and allow them to push back the void and watch as they regrow our humanity. Through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus told his audience about how God saw things, about what God was doing in the world and what God cared most about. And it was much different from what everyone else expected and experienced in their current day. The Beatitudes are snapshots of eight different lives that experience God's favor. It's an invitation to see the world as God does and to love it. One of my favorite biblical scholars is Kenneth E. Bailey. And in his book, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, Bailey tells us that there are two main words for blessed, both in Greek and the Hebrew languages. One word is used in prayer, right? When, when a worship leader asks God for some blessing for the individual or for the community, that, that God might bless us, right? We bless the sick, oh God, bless our children, bless our leaders, give them guidance and wisdom. That's not the word that's used in Jesus' Beatitudes. The other word, the one that's used by Jesus, is described by Raymond Brown as not part of a wish and not to invoke in blessing. Rather, it recognizes an existing state of happiness or good fortune. So it, it affirms a quality of spirituality that is already present. So Bailey says, this is really important for us to distinguish. The Beatitudes as a group do not mean uh, blessed are the people who do X because then they will receive Y after they do X. No, Jesus isn't trying to get us to perform certain types of behavior in order to be blessed. Not at all. Instead, the Beatitudes should be read with the sense, look at the authentic spirituality and joy of these people who have or will experience X. It's a quality of spirituality and joy that is already present in those lives. It's a major distinction. So the beatitude, that's the antidote to the deadly sin of pride, is from Matthew 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Eugene Peterson, in his message translation of the Bible, puts it this way. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. Anybody been there before? Yeah? Now remember, this is an encouragement for people to become poor in spirit. It was addressed to those who were already poor in spirit, already at the end of of their rope. Jesus' blessing on the poor in spirit is a blessing on those who have lost much of the breath that God first gave them. The Hebrew word for breath and spirit is one and the same. Breath, spirit. It's ruach. The poor in spirit are lacking the breath that once made them alive. In the prophetic tradition, the Hebrew people would have known that the poor in spirit meant those who are humble and pious and earnestly seeking God. Isaiah 66.2 said, But this is uh, one to whom I will look at, to the humble, poor, and the contrite in spirit, who tremble at my word. When Jesus spoke of the poor in spirit, who is he referring to? Who is this unfortunate bunch of people who have lost God's breath, who are in such desperate need of God's grace? Very simply, it is everybody. All of us. Everyone fails. 
Everyone stumbles. Everyone gets the wind knocked out of them from time to time throughout life. All of us have places that are not filled with the Spirit of God, but with the void of sin. Everyone has broken and disappointing spots in our lives that just won't heal right. Jesus knows that the only ones who are complete are those that recognize that, that know they are falling apart. They, we are the ones who are poor in spirit. So pride pulls us away from being poor in spirit. It causes us to believe that, no, we're doing a lot better than we actually are, right? Pride insists that we're doing fine. Anybody ever ask you how you're doing, and you say, I'm doing fine, when you're not really doing fine? Pride whispers in our ears that no one will respect us if we actually expose the places where we're hurting or scarred or have failed. Pride prefers isolation than being part of the kingdom of heaven. That's why it's so deadly. Jesus told a parable about two people who had gone to the temple to pray, a Pharisee and a tax collector. A Pharisee was a religious leader, someone that did amazing things in the community. And then the tax collector was one who got rich by cheating his fellow Jews. Pharisee prayed a very pious prayer, thanking God that he wasn't like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even tax collectors. And then he listed some of the good deeds that he's been doing for God's kingdom. End of prayer. Tax collector, however, stood in the back and hung his head in shame and simply said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, what's shocking about the parable is that Jesus commends the blatant sinner. The tax collector. Why? Because despite the fact that he lived his life breaking many of the commandments recorded in Scripture, at least the tax collector knew he was a sinner. He knew he was poor in spirit. He knew where he stood with God and he knew it wasn't pretty. So despite his seeming, but despite his seeming piety, the Pharisee stood on a mountain of pride. And it was that pride that kept him from experiencing God's full goodness and mercy. Friends, as we begin this new year, let us not continue to pretend that everything's all right. We're good. We're fine in our lives. Now, sure, there may be pockets of time when things are going well and we're more or less on the path that we know God has for us. But more often than not, when we think all is well, we really haven't taken the time to critically examine ourselves to see where our hearts truly are. And so this series, I hope and pray, is an invitation for us to do that. May we not let our pride get in the way of allowing God to correct us over these next seven weeks, to mold us, to shape us into the kinds of people that we know God created us to be. Because true blessing, Jesus says, can only be found among those who know where they stand, who know they are poor in spirit. So we may, may we have the courage to hear what Jesus is saying to us today. If we refuse to listen to this, it may indeed lead us deeper into the other of the deadly sins that will approach down the road. It doesn't have to be that way, though. By the grace of God, it does not. Let us welcome God's corrective love and embrace our poverty in spirit. And all God's people say, amen. Let us rise as we sing our closing song this morning.